Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Saif Savage. Saif is a visiting professor at the Human Computer Interaction Institute at Carnegie Mellon University, director of the HCI lab at WVU, West Virginia University, and co-director of the Civic Innovation Lab at the National Autonomous University of Mexico, or UNAM. Saif, welcome to the Twomo AI podcast. Hi, it's a great honor to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Absolutely. I am super excited about our conversation. You have given a NeurIPS invited talk on a future of work for the invisible workers in AI. And we're going to dig deep into uh, your presentation and, and your research in that area. But before we do that, I would love to have you introduce yourself to our audience and share a little bit about how you got started working in AI and your work in, in this area. Thank you. So I'm currently the co-director of the UNAM Civic Innovation Lab and the West Virginia Human Computer Interaction Lab. In my research lab, we are developing intelligent tools that can empower workers to earn higher wages, also develop their skills, and reach the different goals that they have. Being in West Virginia has empowered me to be able to target displaced workers, especially in rural areas. And working at UNAM has empowered me to be designing technology for the global South, particularly Latin America. And I got involved a lot in this field. On one hand, being at West Virginia really showed me another reality about what was happening with workers. So currently in rural areas, you might have a lot of workers who have lost their jobs. And so it's thinking about, okay, how might we now help them uh, given that AI maybe has removed uh, a lot of the lower level entry jobs that they used to have? How might we now empower these workers to get other types of opportunities or even to start to access new types of jobs? And so the part of being at West Virginia empowered me to start to think about ways in which we could help workers to transition to new jobs using AI. Now, previously, I have also been a tech worker, uh, for instance, at Microsoft. And that also helped me to start to also see other realities about what tech workers are exposed to and also start to think about the workers who are working within the RAI systems. And I really started to think about, well, how could we now change and improve the working conditions that these workers have? Because a lot of the times companies focus a lot on delivering excellent services for the customers and yet sometimes we many times forget about the workers. And so that also drove me um, to start to think about, well, how might we design tools so that, yes, the customer is still happy and the companies are still making nice profits, but we're also empowering workers and we're improving their conditions. Mm. Your affiliations are through uh, human computer interaction labs and institutes. I often think of HCI as like user interfaces whereas your work is clearly work you know looking at the interaction between human computers but also in a in a way that feels very interdisciplinary and like incorporating STS science technology studies and other fields uh is that the case so you do a lot of collaborations across those lines yes so i use a lot of uh, friends and social theories in order to inform me okay what are the needs that people have what are their values and of course many times these different stakeholders their values are going to be intention. 
And so I use different methodologies in order to empower me to design technology that can better navigate the different interests that these groups can have. Mm. And so your talk at, at NeurIPS is focusing on, well, you said it yourself in the title, the invisible workers in AI, a class of workers that kind of underlie all or most of, of what we do, practically speaking, from a, an AI perspective. And yet folks often aren't thinking about them unless they're like paying their bills for annotation. Uh, tell us about, you know, who are these invisible workers in AI? So the invisible workers that I consider in AI are the workers who are, for instance, labeling images. These images are then get are then fed into our supervised machine learning models to help machines better understand the world around them. For instance, autonomous vehicles to better understand what is going on. You can also have workers who are labeling websites so that, for instance, Bing is not going to show you pedophilia or hate speech. You can also have workers who might be transcribing audio. So this way, Cortana might be able to better understand what the end user is saying. Or many times, for instance, uh, you can have workers who are going to be reading text so that now Cortana can better understand different types of accents. And so basically, these workers are helping a lot of the times to label the content that is fed into our supervised machine learning models. And the problem is that because they're invisible, we forget about them and we're not thinking about, well, we're not paying many times these workers minimum wage. And also many times we're not providing them with opportunities to grow, to develop themselves if they wanted to. So if, if you have work, you can have workers as well who very much like their job, but if they wanted to suddenly be able to transition to new jobs right now, they have very limited mechanisms in order to do so. Uh, and so the main areas that you just mentioned are economic areas, or at least you can think of them roughly as kind of economic empowerment. One of the things that jumps to mind for me is an article that I read about the you know emotional trauma that folks that are doing content moderation have to endure. I forget this was, you know, yeah. several months ago, maybe a New York Times article or something like that, that really dug into some of the impact this has on the folks that are doing, you know, watching videos for YouTube and, and Facebook. Is that something that you cover in your research as well? Yeah, actually, right now, um, I have been developing interfaces for workers who are leveraging a lot of violent content against women. And so again, these workers are not given any type of psychological support. Um, and so I'm thinking about how might we design interfaces through which, yes, they're still delivering the work that the company is paying them for, but we are helping them to start to think about their mental health. So here, for instance, some of the things that we're doing is just helping workers be aware about what they have been exposed to so that they can manage their mental health better. And so we're, we're studying different types of interfaces that can help workers start to manage some of the things that these many times traumatic experiences that they might be exposed to. And currently, uh, nobody is really thinking about how might we best help them. What, what's an example of something that you might do in the interface that would have an impact on these workers? Right now, one of the things that we're exploring is just even interfaces that tell workers, for instance, okay, today you were exposed to 50 cases of women who are... Um, I'm developing actually these interfaces for Mexican government employees. 
who okay. are exposed to women who might be victims of murder, who, who are on the spectrum of becoming a victim of murder. And so I'm telling these workers, okay, you are exposed today to 50 cases of women who are likely to become murder victims. You might want to consider, for instance, taking a, t- taking a break from this or or you might want to consider doing this and this and this because you were exposed to highly stressful cases this week. And so we're seeing that just making workers even be more aware about what exactly they were exposed to at their job is helpful. And then to their managers, we are also providing interfaces that can better inform them about what their workers are exposed to so that they can start to have uh, micro interventions. The problem is that, for instance, right now, what we were seeing with these workers, there wasn't any measurements taking place. So um, nobody was measuring, okay, to, just to how much violence were these workers exposed to? And that, that was one of the biggest things that we got from the interviews, that workers didn't have a way to manage the, the, the level of violence that they were exposed to. And so this is just a way in which we're providing them with micro-interventions to start to do something about it. Yeah, I'm finding it. Rather difficult to have a you know casual or, or clinical conversation about you know women on the spectrum of murder, and, and I imagine that's part of the problem is that it's difficult to talk about. Do you do you run into that? I, I think actually what happens is that some of these workers have to become uh, disincentivized. And so, for instance, here you can have uh, workers who all of the time, uh, for instance, they're labeling content so that the site is not going to be showing as much violence and so that the AI algorithms can detect uh, like, oh, no, this post is it has too much violence. And the problem is that they get accustomed to talking about it. And so I think that's also another issue where since they're exposed to it all of the time, it suddenly becomes normal. Um, and so even as you mentioned, you're absolutely right. Right now, uh, for instance, for us, maybe discussing um, women who are on the spectrum and sharing content that belongs to women who are on the spectrum of becoming murder victims, that's something that that's extreme violence. But yet these workers are daily exposed to that type of content. And, and so it becomes something normal for them, unfortunately, and, and something that they need to learn how to leverage in their in their daily lives. Mm-hmm. Do you find that in the the management chain of these workers? Is it equally, you know, a topic that they are able to talk about and willing to take on as an issue? Or, you know, are they, uh, once you get beyond the front line, kind of oblivious to it or unwilling to take it on as a issue of concern for their workforce? I think that it depends a lot on the organization. And it also depends... I think actually that what one of the things that we were looking at was that public out, outrage was one of the things that many times did drive change uh, within these organizations. So for instance, uh, having these types of podcasts, news articles that expose what workers are, are the, the conditions that workers are, are operating in, many times that does lead to changes within the, w- within the organizations uh, because they don't like the, um, the backlash that they're getting from, from the media. And so I think that's helpful. I think that some of the issues is that many times they're understaffed. And so even the managers don't know, they, they don't want to be as accountable because there's not really any, much that they can do. So for instance, the, in, the, in the case of these organizations, they might not have the resources to give workers uh, somebody who can provide them with mental health. And so because they don't have the resources, they, they prefer to kind of like step back and pretend that nothing is happening. And that's why I feel 
actually that, um, and recently research came out around that, where a lot of public outrage did start helping to change the work conditions of, of workers. And so I think a lot of these, uh, just giving visibility to the fact that it's happening, I think helps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at least part of your approach as a scientist, computer scientist, uh, HCI scientist is kind of technical solutions. The interfaces that are presented to these workers it makes me think of, you know, folks that kind of decry techno solutionism, like that technology is the solution to all these these kinds of problems. And I think that also relates to kind of the cross-disciplinary conversation that we had. You know, what's your take on, you know, whether these are issues that we address with technology versus, you know, other means of engaging and empowering these workers? Yeah. Um, so within my research, I always consider more uh, socio-technical solutions. Um, and that's why we do a lot of interviews to understand uh, people's different values, uh, their different needs, so that it's not uh, like, oh, we're finding, we're looking for nails for a hammer that we built. Um, yeah. And so we, we do always uh, take the time to think more about, we, we don't see, uh, for instance, we don't see AI or technology as the ultimate solution. But rather, we see um, also other ways through which the communities uh, can engage with each other to find uh, solutions. Um, and th- that's also something that we are doing, uh, for instance, for rural workers. So for rural workers, one of the things is that we wanted to create spaces where they could develop their skills. One of the things that we're doing is we're teaming up with public libraries and we're creating help tech desks where anybody can come on in and ask questions around technology. Here, we're not necessarily developing tools. But these types of interventions that we're creating are facilitating skill development within these rural workers. And so I definitely agree with you that technology is not always the best solution, and it's best to really understand the different needs that people can have. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the aspects of your research that try to give us a more holistic picture of who these workers are? Have you developed a, a profile? Is there such a thing? Or... I imagine there's incredible diversity within the communities of folks that engage in this kind of work as well. What what can you say about them? Yeah. So some of the things that I have been doing is on one hand, I have conducted interviews and surveys with workers uh, to understand, for instance, what are the challenges that urban invisible workers face versus rural invisible workers? Additionally, I have also developed tools through which we can start to measure what is happening directly on these digital labor platforms. That was how we discovered, oh, you know what? Workers here are actually paid less than minimum wage. Workers are offered, uh, for instance, these types of information. The workers who are able to thrive follow these types of patterns um, and have the and, and, are, and are able to do these types of things. And so through these mechanisms is that I have been able to profile the different types of workers that exist. I think that what is interesting on one hand is how Yes, for rural communities, these types of invisible labor platforms are very helpful because they are offering the region new types of jobs that they would never have access to beforehand. And so it is important to take note about how these invisible labor platforms do have a lot of positive things related to them. For instance, providing jobs to regions that many times didn't have access to these types of jobs. Um, We're also finding, for instance, people with disabilities are also uh, thriving many times on these platforms. Again, because if you have, for instance, a mobility issue, sometimes, well, not not a mobility issue, but rather let's say that you have a mobility disability. What we're finding is that this type of labor allows people to be able to take the breaks that they need in order to receive any type of treatment that they want 
Um, and so it provides them with flexibility. We also had, uh, for instance, in our, in our interviews, we also had people who were suffering from depression and they found the, the work on Invisible Labor Platform actually very motivating. Why do they find it motivating? Because the fact that it was micro tasks, and so it was small tasks that they were doing, for instance, labeling images, it helped them to feel accomplished. So it's like, oh, yes, I was able to uh, be able to do 10, 10 of these tasks. And so they expressed that they felt that was helpful for treating their, their depression. Um, and so there are a lot of positive things that these types of digital labor platforms also bring. And that is also important to highlight. But yes, I have been profiling the workers, especially using tools and interviews and surveys. Years ago, maybe, you know, 10 plus years ago, the articles that I would read about, um, you know, these content moderation workforces would talk about, you know, office, you know, essentially call centers for content moderation. I'm imagining that a lot of this work has since shifted into remote work. Has your research identified any interactions between, you know, remoteness and isolation and the impact of this kind of work on the worker? So, yes. And uh, here there is a lot of body of work, um, which I think that that's a very interesting point about what, what similarities and differences are there when we're thinking about these uh, phone uh, operators. I think some of the things also to consider is how with an invisible labor, a lot of the cost, a lot of the overhead is now placed onto the worker um, that was before given to the company. So for instance, when you're thinking about phone operators, they usually didn't have to spend time searching for work. And all of the time in which, for instance, maybe they were um, in a certain cubicle, uh, just taking calls, all of the time that they were in that cubicle was paid, was what was time where they were, uh, they were insured that they would receive a certain salary. I think one of the differences that you have with this type of invisible labor is that those additional costs about, okay, you have to search for work, you have to communicate with the person, but you're not necessarily completing a task at that moment, are moments where you're not receiving a salary. And so those are overheads, those are costs that before, uh, for instance, with the phone operators, they were placed onto the company, and now they're placed onto the worker. And this is also one of the reasons why workers have now less, uh, they are receiving not as high salaries, if that makes sense. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the main differences that we are seeing. Additionally, I I would say that another barrier, and so we are seeing also that workers are uniting. For instance, you have a lot of online forums where workers are sharing tips and advice. And so what we started to do as well was develop tools through which workers could find each other directly on the digital labor platform to start to unite and share tips with each other. Hmm. Uh, I'm inferring from your point about the workers having to look for work that, you know, the picture in my head is like the rideshare worker that's got the, you know, the one phone for Uber and the other phone for Lyft. Like these workers are they're not a YouTube employee that is spending, you know, X hours a day moderating videos for YouTube. They are someone that, you know, has accounts to do moderation for a bunch of different services and kind of splits their time based on wherever the work is. Is that generally exactly. the case? Yes, exactly. Exactly. So in one case, for instance, like the, let's say the, the YouTube moderator, maybe this is a person who sits down and has constant work. And so they are insured a certain type of salary. But for instance, the Uber drivers, they many times are with their car completely alone. And so there they're trying to find, they're, they're trying to find clients. Um, and so all of the time that they are spending finding clients is time when they are not being paid. And, and so, and, and that, that's an overhead that is given to workers. 
But especially within invisible labor, for instance, workers who are categorizing content on digital labor platforms, they are many times doing exactly what you mentioned. They're looking to, okay, is this a task that I can do? Is this a, is this a task that I can do? So they have to spend the time finding good work and finding work in, in, mm-hmm. in general. And that's time when they, they're not paid. Got it. Got it. You mentioned distinctions in your research between the worker experiences in urban areas versus rural areas. You've spoken a bit to the rural worker experience, both the the issues and benefits. Can you elaborate on the urban versus rural distinction a bit more? Yeah. So some of the things that we were finding with urban was, okay, advantages that urban has is that there is good internet infrastructure in general everywhere. And so we did have more workers who would take on invisible labor while on the go. So they might be doing invisible labor, uh, for instance, uh, while they are going into their office. Um, We did also find that many of them in urban settings, they had maybe another job that they would do. And then on the side, they would be doing invisible labor. However, a lot of the people from urban areas would have to take on invisible labor as a way to just make ends meet because their full-time job in X company just wasn't enough for, for instance, for living in New York. And so they had to take on the invisible labor. Whereas in urban areas, uh, people many times would work full-time just as invisible workers. Um, And they were also doing it many times at home, precisely because they didn't have uh, access to good infrastructure. And right now, some some of the things that we're doing is we're transforming libraries into spaces where people in rural areas can start to do these types of uh, work as well, because not everyone in rural areas also has access at home with good internet. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, Another area of distinction that you focus on is between the global North and global South, US, Latin America. Can you elaborate on what you're seeing more from a global perspective? Yeah. So I've been working a lot with rural areas in Mexico. I've also been collaborating with Mexico's federal government, particularly Mexico's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, to start to be able to design more interfaces at scale. One of the biggest difference that I'm seeing, for instance, is in rural areas in Mexico, the end users are more women. You have a lot of women because the men leave for the cities or, for instance, they also migrate into the U.S. And so here, when I'm designing for women, it changes a lot the dynamics about how the interface looks like. So one of the things, uh, for instance, we started developing uh, interfaces through which women could start to build and change their communities. One of the things that we started to do was have part of these interfaces be of clay. Clay allows uh, the women to be able to easily manipulate the interface and and what they want without having to have a lot of strength. And also clay is uh, something that's uh, very inexpensive to use. And so I have been playing a lot with uh, this notion about understanding, again, who are the workers that I'm designing for? What are their characteristics in order to design differently for them? And the ones in the U.S., for instance, an advantage that the U.S. in rural areas has is that in general, you might have areas that are from low resources. However, you still have public libraries in the region. And so that's why, for instance, in the U.S., we're leveraging public libraries as spaces where we can uh, work together with these uh, rural adults. You mentioned, uh, I wasn't fully following the interfaces with Clay comments that you were mentioning. It's hard for me to create a picture in my head of what that even looks like and means. Can you elaborate on that some more? It sounds fascinating. 
Oh, yeah. Thank you. So here, actually, we teamed up. So one of my students uh, was working for several years, actually, in some of these rural communities. And so we did something that's called participatory design, where we get him very embedded in the community. And then he created a startup from this project, which is called Infra Rural. And so basically what we do is that we guide women, we provide micro guidance uh, to women, which can be provided through their cell phones or, uh, for instance, even just have them print out th those instructions. And what we're doing is that we're guiding these uh, women around how they can collaborate with other women to build certain infrastructure in their community. So one of the things that, and this infrastructure is made out of clay. And so through this, we started helping women to collaborate with each other so that they could build, for instance, efficient stoves. So one of the problems that exists in this region, in rural regions, for instance, in Mexico, is that a lot of women are still using stoves that are basically made out of direct wood. And so that, that creates a lot of toxins uh, for their lungs. And so we were guiding them to build together uh, efficient stoves through which they would not be exposed to those toxins. And these stoves were made out of clay. And they also followed uh, their traditional, um, like the how, the how they traditionally cook. Because another problem that existed was uh, previously, for instance, the government had come on in and delivered efficient stoves that were made from Europe into the region. What happened was that nobody used the stoves. And so what we did was that we turned it into a collaborative process through which women worked together. And by working together, they felt much more motivated to use these efficient stoves. And the stoves were co-designed by them, and that motivated them to use them as well. Um, and so the stoves are completely adapted to their needs. Does that make sense? And so what is made out of clay is the infrastructure that they're building. Okay, it sounds like you're presenting that as an example of how you can go into a community and, and kind of co-design a solution to a problem with them. But that's not necessarily directly related to the invisible AI worker. Yeah, here I'm designing for workers within rural regions. So I have been working within different types of workers. And then I have also been focusing on the invisible workers. One thing that I am currently focused on is interfaces through which these rural workers can transition to jobs within these digital labor platforms. So because there are advantages of being an invisible worker, for instance, in rural regions, there are advantages. And now we're guiding them to be able to become invisible workers, but within a setting in, w in which they are going to receive uh, good wages. Got it. Right. And I apologize. I think I conflated your work on the AI stuff with your broader work on the workers in the global south, but I, I got it. In terms of the invisible workers in AI, a couple of things that you covered in your presentation were ways that we can empower these workers, You know, ways that we can understand what their goals are. We've kind of talked about a, a lot of that. Are, are there uh, other points that you covered in your presentation that we should be sure to cover? I think that some of the things is uh, considering that it is important to allow workers to define themselves, the, the type of goals that they want to go after, and then just helping them uh, be able to accomplish this. So within the interviews that I've done with these invisible workers, one of the main things is also that Many times uh, we as researchers uh, go, come on in and, and act like, oh, we need to save you. 
But these workers have all said, you know what, I actually really like my job. It's motivating. And what I would like maybe is more ways in which I can better collaborate with other workers. And so that, that has been one of the things that we have also been facilitating. I think that it's important to facilitate collaborations between workers so that they can go after the different goals that they have. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the work that you've described is direct engagement with these workers. Does your work also encompass engaging with uh, the broader community on, you know, things that we should be thinking about when we're engaging with these workers or things that we should be thinking about, you know, more broadly uh, in terms of, you know, helping to advocate for the welfare of these workers, you know, economically, psychologically, et cetera? Yeah. So I have also been developing uh, interfaces that are targeting employers. Um, And so here, for instance, some of the interfaces that I have developed focus on informing employers when they might be uh, being unfair with workers in their evaluations. Um, So one of the things that we have found that that's a big issue on these platforms is that many times you can have employers who with one bad review, the the worker is terminated. Um, And so we are we develop platforms that can detect when an employer evaluated a worker unfairly. And we're nudging employers to reconsider their evaluation so that workers are not unjustly terminated. So that's one thing that uh, I have been looking at. I have also been engaging uh, with the different, uh, for instance, tech companies to start to think about how we might collaborate in in order to create together better conditions uh, for workers. Here, I have also developed the tools through which I can study what is happening inside these uh, platforms. So for instance, okay, what type of salaries are workers exposed to? Um, what type of tasks are they asked to do? These types of tools through which I can inspect uh, what is happening inside the digital labor platform is very helpful for having conversations with the technology companies about some of the things that we can do. And also even just have conversations uh, with other academics about what type of labor conditions are we creating for workers. So with other researchers, um, right now we were designing a platform, um, actually with, uh, it's a researcher named Six Silverman, a platform where people, where academics, other employers would commit to paying uh, fair wages. And so I think you're absolutely right. It's important to engage the different stakeholders, not just focus on workers, but rather make all of uh, all of us accountable. Mm-hmm. You know, we've seen a lot in the news with regards to legislative activity around uh not specifically crowd workers, but, uh, or not specifically, um, you know, folks, uh, working in AI, but kind of crowd workers generally. There was some, some big legislation out in California recently. You know, what's the current regulatory and legislative landscape look like? You know, or, and what's kind of, are there any big things looming on the horizon that, uh, will be important for this community? Yeah, I, I want to mention that with regards to legislation, there is uh, th- there's a lot of workers actually that were very much behind it. So right now I've been doing a social media analysis about what workers are saying about these different um, policy changes that, that are happening and legislation changes. One of the biggest things that I was finding was that there was a lot of conversations where workers expressed that they didn't feel that they had any place to go where they could complain that they weren't, that they didn't agree with this new legislation that was allegedly going to help them. And so I think that it's helpful to, it's, it's, I think that it's, it's very complicated, actually. 
because it's not clear to me who wh- what what interests these these different legislations might be best representing. And so I think that it's still important to have more conversations with workers to understand their different perspectives about why why certain legislation might benefit them or why certain legislations might not benefit them. But I think that as a community, some of the things that we could uh, even start doing is just even thinking about, for instance, when we think about clothing, within clothing or even food, we have a lot of times a stamp that says, oh, this was created with fair labor. We could think about something similar with uh, AI work. So uh, maybe we just have maybe certain stamps and recognitions from the community that where we say, oh, this was produced with fair AI labor. And I do think that it is important to have that, that type of uh, conversations, given the conditions that many workers are exposed to. And are you seeing any motion towards that? Are there any initiatives trying to take that uh, that particular topic on or are we still very early in the, the conversation phase there? I think that it is growing. Uh, so for instance, even just having this conversation right now is yeah. helpful for, for starting to create that change. So for instance, before a lot of these big tech companies would never talk about their invisible workers. Right now, from interviews that we've had with these invisible workers, they have mentioned that they have had uh, conversations where uh, companies are being much more open and they are creating changes. Uh, for instance, I know Amazon has created a lot of changes with respect to how it is uh, treating uh, in- invisible workers. It has done a lot of, I, I think in general, positive changes um, in the last uh, few months um, where it is aiming to to start to change uh, some of the conditions. Um, and so I, I feel somewhat more positive about what is going on. I think giving visibility to what is happening is helpful. Um, and also understanding the different perspectives. Um, so it's not just that you have one bad guy. Uh, many times it's that they might not be necessarily aware of the whole situation. And so I think that we can create context where all of the stakeholders benefit. Are there organizations in existence that you might point us to that are working on this? Yeah, so a big one is actually Turkopticon. I also mentioned it in my talk. Um, if others want to check out that page, they're very interested right, actually in donations uh, because that's how they survive. So Turkopticon is an organization that is worker-driven and it is for invisible workers. And they have been negotiating a lot of things uh, for these invisible workers. And uh, they have made, I, I think, great strides in uh, being able to advance the conditions of invisible workers. They are also developing tools to empower invisible workers. And so I think this organization is really important. That is really pushing and changing the conditions. I imagine the Turk in Turkopticon comes from Mechanical Turk. (laughs) Yes, yes. So they're they're primarily focused on um, Mechanical Turk. But recently they have had very good negotiations uh, within the platform. Okay, interesting. Do you have a, uh, how did you conclude your presentation? Is there a a call to arms, call to action, top three things that we all should be doing or thinking about? Yeah. So um, when we're thinking about uh, fair labor conditions, I think on one hand, it is thinking about fair wages. Uh, So for instance, when you're posting tasks related to your AI models, think about how long would it take workers to do this task? How might I pay them minimum wage? And actually, you do have a lot of the times, uh, mostly it, it is American workers. Um, and so it, you, you, you should think about the U.S. minimum wage uh, that, that you're paying workers. Oh, and I also invited them uh, to contribute and participate with Tricopticon. 
I think that working together in these types of platforms that are doing something for workers is also very empowering. Um, finally, I'm also very interested, of course, in empowering workers within the global south. Um, and so I also invited them to collaborate with my lab at UNAM. And so just to start to design more interfaces, especially for Latin America, I think that there there's a lot of opportunity in terms of what we can do also for the region. Awesome. Awesome. Saif, thanks so much for taking the time to share a bit about what you're working on. Thanks so much for the invitation. Absolutely. It was great chatting with you and congrats on the talk at NARPS. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.